As much as I enjoy the summer, there's something about September coming. And I don't know, this morning when I walked out of the house, it felt like fall. I don't know what it feels like uh, right now. Maybe that's because of the hurricane that's coming uh, this next week. Have you guys heard about that? Yeah, make sure you're ready for next weekend, batten down the hatches. Uh, but every, everybody's kind of, uh, there's something about September that just kind of seems like a starting off point, like a launching off point. Everybody's kind of, the summer's done, everybody's getting back into their regular routines, everybody's kind of done with their vacation, the kids are going back to school, and things are kind of settling in, and the status quo is about to uh, uh, come back into our normal rhythm of life. But before all that happens, um, I, I'm, pretty, uh, I'm pretty excited about this sermon series because I'm, I'm hopeful of a couple things. One thing is that I'm, I'm hopeful that it challenges your status quo. Uh, I'm hopeful that uh, it challenges your kind of normal uh, spiritual life. And, and when I say challenge, I know sometimes that, that's kind of a, a challenge. I was like, what, you know, what is it going to say? <laughs> you know, what's going to happen here? But, but when I say that, what I mean to say is I, I hope that as uh, we talk about this subject of being with God over the next four, uh, four weeks, that this is going to be kind of a launching off point for you, maybe a starting off point, maybe a, uh, a renewal point in your faith journey with God. Uh, that when I say challenge, I'm really talking about an encouragement to what your relationship and your spiritual walk with God actually looks like in your life. So I'm really looking forward to this four-week series. Uh, occasionally I come across a book uh, that is about the Bible or some particular point of theology or Christian living uh, that just communicates in such a clear and concise way uh, that I know, and some of you guys have been here for sermon series that we've done uh, that have been inspired by, by a book uh, or two, and uh, I'm really excited about sharing this book with you this morning because of how it clearly defines and explains what a life with God looks like. And so the book is called With, uh, so there's a picture of it there so you can recognize uh, the cover. It's by Sky Jathani, uh, which I know that's a really weird name, but it's S-K-Y-E, uh, is his first name, and Jathani is J-E-T-H-A-N-I. And we'll post uh, the book and a link on that on our Facebook page. But just so you know, if you're curious uh, to read more about this or would like to pick up a copy for yourself, uh, it's being sold on Amazon Kindle for only 7 bucks right now, all right? Uh, so uh, you, can, uh, you, can check, you can check that out. So here's the thing, here's, and here's why we're talking about this, um, and here's why we're talking about this series. If you've ever felt that you've been distant from God or that he's been distant from you, kind of flip side of the same coin, then this series is for you. Here's the catch. I know for a fact that all of us have felt that at some point in our faith journey with God. All of us have felt distant from him or felt like he's been distant from us at some point in our walk with God. And here's what I want us to consider. And here's, here's the challenging part, Okay. But, but hang with me. Here's what I want us to consider. That any emotional distance between us and God is self-imposed. Any emotional distance between us and God is self-imposed. We're the ones that are the weakling. You can normally tell who or what someone is connected to or who they're close to. There are outward signs and clues that we give uh, from a social standpoint. If you're married, you wear a ring or you get a tattoo on your finger. If you're dating, you hold hands. If you're friends, maybe you give a handshake. You know, guys are kind of the, the handshake, one-arm hug, you know, kind of thing that we do. Maybe, you know, ladies, you do some more stuff. I don't, I don't really know. Uh, but you see a friend, uh, or you're meeting somebody, maybe you give a handshake, or you just kind of do a, 
you know, hello, you know, kind of awkward wave uh, to someone. Uh, for things that we support, uh, we'll make a Facebook post about it. Do you know there's also a delete button for your Facebook post? I don't know if, if you knew that. You guys aren't going to laugh about that? Come on. You're taking yourself too seriously. Uh, or we put a bumper sticker on a car or maybe wear, we'll wear a shirt. It's Jersey Sunday. Yes, the, I know this is not a football jersey. And yes, I know the Washington Nationals are, are out of the playoff hunt. Uh, and I, that's fine. But we wear our jerseys so people can see what team we're a fan of. Some of us are braver than others with the jerseys that we wear and the fans we support. I talked to one football fan who's not even wearing a jersey for his team, you know, this morning. So that tells you how they, they feel about that. True fans scoff at bandwagoners for their lack of commitment because of the time and the money and the emotional equity that are wrapped up in the things that we care about. There are much less external versions of this as well. You've probably heard... You know, the phrase somewhere along the lines of show me your calendar or show me your bank account and I'll tell you what you care about the most in your life. The way we schedule our time and spend our resources, communicate who or what we value the most. Of course, over time, those things can change based on how we feel things are being reciprocated back to us and the things that we care about and the people we care about. It happens with relationships. It happens with our favorite teams or our restaurants, our favorite stores. Some of you have a long football season ahead of you, and at the end of it, or maybe towards the middle of it, you're going to wonder, is it worth still rooting for this team? Is my loyalty going to be worth it? But what if the problem isn't always with everything else in our life? What if the problem is less about everything else and more along the lines of how we relate to the world around us? See, I, I think we're more self-aware than maybe we've ever been as a culture and as a society. Like most of us probably, if I were to ask you if you're an introvert or if you're an extrovert, most of us could probably tell us, you know, which one of those we are. Or if I were to ask you about whether or not you've taken the Myers-Briggs or the DISC analysis or if you've taken um, Strength Finders, if you've gone through that, or maybe the new things, the Enneagram, have you guys heard of that? I'm a number one, I found out. Some of you don't even know what that is. See, there's a whole new thing out there, and we find out what we are, and we find out how other people should treat us, right? I mean, that's what, that's what we do. We learn more about ourselves. So we're more self-aware than ever, but we're also, uh, I think, maybe more selfish than ever, too. We're more in tune with how we want others to relate to us, but we miss out on the opportunity to understand how we should relate to them. And I think this happens a lot when it comes to how we relate to God. If God was on the hook for every single expectation that everyone in humanity and throughout history had on him, had placed on him, the world, <laughs> the world would have imploded a long time ago. I mean, think, uh, <laughs> I'm thankful that's not the case. I mean, look at the person next to you. It's like, yeah, if they could determine what God was and what God did, I mean, we'd live in a very different world. If my kids had the run of our family... <laughs> You can imagine how things would be. I'd be play Barbies and horses all day uh, while playing sports and video games and doing projects and eating ice cream. I'm cool with that one. And playing putt-putt and going to boomerang air sports in the park and everything else based on whatever whim that the, my kids have. That's how my kids want to primarily relate to me. They want to hang out. They want to spend time together. They want to go do things all the time. They don't want me to go to work. <laughs> I'm always in trouble. Oh, you have to go to work again, Dad? Come on. But we all know that that's silliness. There are whole categories of life experiences that my kids would miss out on if all we did was what they wanted to do all the time. 
One of my jobs is to help them learn how to navigate life by giving them a foundation for how they relate to God and how they relate to the rest of the world. And if I'm not thoughtful about how I do this and let my kids dictate their lives, there will be some tough consequences down the road. And it's the same thing when it comes to our relationship with God. If we expect God to relate to us based on what we want and what we expect of him, then he's not our Lord. We are. We're the ones trying to exert our control and our desires over him. And so how we relate to God, how we choose to relate to him, determines how we experience him. Where things go sideways is when we're relating to him in a way that he doesn't relate to us. You know how a relationship can go sideways when you do that, right? You, we've all had that experience. When you're not on the same page with someone, if I say, you know, you had that discussion where you're going to define the relationship, most of you know what I'm talking about. Like, that's, that's a good conversation to have, absolutely, but it's not ne- necessarily a good indication that things are going well if you have to define the relationship. Or if your idea of friendship with someone else was really their idea of taking advantage of you and making you a stepping stone to something else that they wanted to achieve in their life. I know many of us have experienced that before. We thought we were friends with someone, and really they were just using us for a time. Or maybe your presumption of what any other decent human being would do in a given situation was shattered by how they treated you. Christians are really good at that one, by the way. So there are four main ways that we relate to God religiously that determine how we experience him. And so we're going to be looking at those, and we're going to be talking about how each of them fail to really capture how God chooses to relate to us. So as we go through these, some of these are going to apply to you, some of them aren't. But I want you to consider and think through, hey, do I find myself in one of these categories? And, and maybe there's an option uh, that takes care of all these four that miss the mark. So the first one is this, it's life over God. All right? And when you hear that, you might first think, okay, that's, that's someone who's kind of distanced themselves from God. Maybe that's somebody who is an atheist or an agnostic, and, and that might be true, and that might be kind of fit in with that as the category. Um, but many Christians live a life over God as well. This would be described as believing that God exists and created the universe, but he's kind of taken a step back and he's letting things go. I mean, some, of, uh, some people would call this the watchmaker that God has kind of wound things up and he's kind of set it down and he's letting it happen. He's not really that involved in everyday life. Well, this technically actually isn't called Christianity. This is called deism. Life over God effectively cuts out the middleman and gives us direct control over our lives. So you and I, we can pick up the Bible and we can read through this and we can look at all the biblical principles that are here, all the rules for godly living, all the uh, advice and even commands that were given about how to live live a godly life. And we can take those and we can kind of pick and choose through those and determine what we want to incorporate into our life. And we can end up with a pretty great life. I mean, end up really well. I mean, that, that's one of the beauty about the Bible. Like when we, when we follow God's word, it's actually kind of a guarantee that the way things that he says are supposed to work uh, will, will work, even in the face of a broken world. And so we can take those principles, we can apply them to our life, and we can end up with a pretty good and happy life. And also never have a relationship with God. And the problem with this is that when we think we can kind of alleviate our fears in life, we can take care of our needs and wants by controlling our lives through religious principle, we kind of take on this burden that we were never meant to carry. 
picking and choosing what wisdom to apply from the Bible and trying to get it perfect builds in a level of anxiety to life that is self-imposed, not God-given. It says, I'm responsible for every outcome in my life, which really just puts us in a position of experiencing life without God, not with him. Here's the flip side of the same coin. Life under God. That guy doesn't look very happy, does it? Does he? In this scenario, religion is a way of understanding and controlling otherwise unpredictable forces, and with a sense of control, people feel less afraid. On November 28, 2010, the Buffalo Bills faced the Pittsburgh Steelers, and the Bills lost when wide receiver Steve Johnson dropped a pass in the end zone during overtime. And after the game, here's what he wrote on Twitter to God. All right? uh, and, and just imagine after every sentence, there are three exclamation points, okay? All right. I'm not going to actually yell it at you. All right. I praise you 24-7, and this is how you do me? You expect me to learn from this? How? I'll never forget this, ever. Life under God believes that if we live according to divine rules, we'll escape undesired circumstances. It means following rituals and obeying commands, which do exist in the Bible, but as a means of controlling God for a desired outcome. That's really what it ends up being. We see this in the Pharisees, that Jesus continually uh, speaks against, preaches against. His messages are against what they've taught and, and kind of the yoke that they've put over the Israelites. You see this in the Pharisees in the New Testament who believe their good fortune was evidence of God's blessing their devotion. But it's not what happens on the outside that counts. It's what's, it's what's happen, happening in our hearts and our minds that counts. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 11, this is what Jesus says to the Pharisees. He says, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. And so maybe you found yourself there. I mean, and we can legitimately find ourselves and following God and how we're taught to relate to him as we move through our faith journey and our life with him that, man, God, I've done, I've done what you've told me to do, so let, let's have a little bit of reciprocation here and kind of be disappointed with our relationship with him. Here's, here's, the, third, here's the third way. And this is life from God. That just looks well, anyway, we'll get, we'll get into that. There's a test that's been administered um, that includes about 24 questions about your personality. So it asks questions about your mood. Uh, or, you know, do you get moody? Do you get nervous? Are you an introvert or extrovert? And then a companion test, so you take that after that. You take the same test that have the same questions about Jesus' personality, and so you answer it that same way. And the results are consistent through everybody who, who uh, proctor this, this exam for, uh, for people. The results are consistent. Everyone thinks that Jesus is just like them. Who would have thought? What a scary world that would be. You kind of side-eye the person next to you. <laughs> it gives teeth to this criticism uh, from Voltaire about Christianity. If God has made us in his image, we have returned him the favor. Christian Smith, a sociologist from the University of North Carolina, spent years studying the religious lives of teenagers. His conclusion was this. Most view God as a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. 
They look at God and see him and say, help me and give me what I want. And where in the world would they get that idea from? Thanks, Mom and Dad. This is the health and wealth gospel that we hear about, that God is a means to an end, that if we honor him, he's supposed to honor us. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 through 14, this is exactly what God warns his people against as he has brought them out of slavery, out of Egypt. He says, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, this sounds amazing. This is the American dream, right? This is exactly what we're going for. Verse 14, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Time and time again, the Israelites and believers throughout history have pulled away from God in times of prosperity and peace. God absolutely, graciously gives us all good things, but the things are not what we glory in. He is. The things are not the things that we're worshiping and have a relationship. It's supposed to be about him. And here's the fourth one. This is life for God. Now, this one is my favorite. And this one is, is the least wrong because it is my favorite. Okay? That's how this works. I don't know if you know that, but that's how the, this is the least wrong because this one is my favorite. This is how my life primarily, I have lived my life for God. All right? This is, this is my thing. I love this one. And on the surface... It sounds like it would be the most godly way, and it is, because it's my favorite. But it also falls just short of the way that God wants to relate to us. And so for those of you that would find yourself in this category, here's kind of the, the test and the question that I would ask you for you to you know, determine whether or not this, this is the one that fits you. I want you to ask yourself this question. Don't, don't answer out loud or anything or the person next to you. Just think your answer to yourself. How do you think God feels about you when you sin? Speaking to you as a Christian, fellow brother and sister in Christ, how do you think God feels about you when you sin? All right. Specifically, even especially, how do you think God feels about you when you sin in the same way over and over and over? Your habits. Because we all have them. How do you think God feels about you? Maybe your answer is similar to mine, which I think is perfectly reasonable because of my answer. I think he's disappointed. And maybe rightly so. Because we want to strive for righteousness, absolutely. But for those of you that are living a life for God, like me, don't forget this truth. In the midst of your sin, God still loves you. You're still called a child of God. The truth is, you have been covered with Christ. Jesus certainly calls us to be on mission. We're instructed to live life conspicuously as disciples of Jesus, but, and I know how much I need to hear this and be reminded of this, those are not the things that prove that your life is valuable to God. You don't have to prove the value of your life because God has already done that through Jesus. One of the most on-mission people in Scripture, 
Outside of Jesus is Paul. He writes most of the New Testament. He continually gives instructions on how we are able to do that in our faith journey with God. But listen to what he writes in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. For this reason I kneel before my Father, before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So all four of those categories, life over God, life under God, life from God, life for God, those are all based on misunderstandings of how God wants to relate to us. Now, I get some of you are thinking, wait, wait, there's some good things in each of those categories, too. And yes, there are. There are elements in which all of those things come together in our relationship with God. Absolutely. But this is how God desires to relate to, humili- to humanity and bring those elements together. It's this. It's life. It's life with God. Here's how life is with God is different. Life under, over, from, and for God, each seeks to use God to achieve some other goal. God is seen as a means to an end. For example, life from God uses him to supply our material desires. Life over God uses him as the source of principles or laws. Life under God tries to manipulate God through obedience to secure blessings and avoid calamity. And life for God uses him and his mission to gain a sense of direction and purpose. But life with God is different because its goal is not to use God, its goal is God. He ceases to be a device we employ or a commodity we consume. Instead, God himself becomes the focus of our desire. Life with God is how the Bible begins and ends. We start with Genesis, and we start with God creating the Garden of Eden, where he walks in the cool of the garden, looking to be with Adam and Eve as they're walking together. And it's our pride and it's our desire to control and be apart from God that caused them to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and caused us to be broken from him and separated from him. Revelation, the book in to the, to the scripture, we read that. It's all about God redeeming his people and bringing us to the place that he is preparing to be with us for all eternity. Life with God is why Jesus became the God-man to live, die, and be raised again. Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. We normally save this for Christmas time. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God came to be with us through Jesus and continues to be with us here with the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? God gives us the Holy Spirit to be with us, indwells us, literally. The final words of Jesus as Matthew presents them is this sentence. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. God's desire for our relationship with him is that we would be fully satisfied with him. Not because of what he can do for us in this life, not because he's got heaven waiting for us in the future and we kind of punch our ticket now. He wants to be with us now. He's not a means to an end. He's the beginning and the end, and he's everything in between in a life with God. 
In life with God, God is our treasure. He's the sole object of our desire. We are able to be united with him despite our sin through Christ's death and resurrection, and we can experience him now through his invitation to be in regular communion and relationship with him. We said earlier that any emotional distance between us and God is self-imposed. So Christian, hear this. It is in communing with God that we discover that God has been with us all along. And so over the next couple weeks, we're going to be talking about what it looks like to live with God with faith, with hope, and with love. But I, I just want to kind of give you an encouragement this week, something to do and maybe practically incorporate in your life. And I want you to consider that, that your prayer life, for example, and wherever that might be in your life, those are the moments in, with, in which you spend time with God. That a lot of times, I, I know, and even I do, we think of prayer in terms of communication with God, but prayer is our opportunity to commune with God, is to be with him. You look at Jesus' life and, and the times that, I mean, you think, oh, Jesus, now's the time to do great ministry or preach another great message or do another great miracle. And Jesus says, you know what, at first, before this big thing that happens, I actually need to go off and I need to go spend time with God. I need to commune with him. And so our prayer life for example, is, is not the place where we can kind of like, oh, God, <laughs> you know, I forgot to study for this test. Please help me. Or, oh, God, I've got this meeting at work, and it might not go well. Please, please make this go better. Oh, God, we've got another bill that we can't pay. You know, please help. No, it's an opportunity for us to commune with him. We can pray with God through his scripture, through his word. That as we read what he's communicated to us about himself, as he's taught us about how he wants to relate, relate to us, that's an opportunity for us to reflect and communicate and listen with him in what he's called us to do and to be in a life with God. We can pray with the church. There's one thing that's really consistent through all, throughout Scripture in that none of us are alone in our relationship with God. That not only are we called to be with him, but we're called to do that together. And, and that's beyond just uh, we have opportunities on first and third Sunday of every month for us to come together at 5 o'clock and pray together as a church. So there's that. But there's also the opportunity to be a part of small groups, to be a part of serving with each other, to be a part of relationships with each other so much that we know what's going on with each other so that we can pray together and alongside of each other. That when you know something's going on, you see a text or a Facebook post, that's a great time to reach out and say, hey, I'm going to be praying alongside of you and with you. That's part of how we experience a relationship with God. And we can pray with the Holy Spirit. And when I say that, I know there's a lot of different ways that that can be taken. Um, one of the things that the way that the Holy Spirit uh, is described in the Bible is that he is our advocate, he is our helper, and that he is our counselor. And so if you were to spend time throughout your day examining your life, asking yourself this question, what does it look like for me to live a life with God? And think through, like, how, how has my life today been impacted by God? Where have I seen God move? Where have I seen him working uh, in my life or in the lives of others around me? We start to commune with God when we pray and we spend time with him. And it's not just a form of communication from us to him but we're listening and we're seeing how he's working in our life. We can have a relationship that is with him. If you're not a Christian yet, um, maybe, uh, maybe the reason for that 
is because you've seen people live a life over, under, from, and for God, and there always seems to be something that's just missing from those things. Well, there, there is in each of those things. All of us, no matter what of our background, no matter where we've been, are invited to be in relationship with him. So if you believe that Jesus is the Savior God sent to redeem you from your sins so that you could be with him, and you, you have a standing opportunity and invitation here to begin that faith journey with God. You're invited to repent and be baptized and confess that he is Lord and be a part of receiving this grace that gives us the assurance that he is with us. This is what a life with God looks like. So let's pray. God, um, for you to be the sole object of our desire means that everything that we do or that we say is somehow connected or disconnected from that. And God, I, I just ask that you help us to see those opportunities through your Holy Spirit, that you would help to train us in that godliness in pursuing a life with you. God, I, we ask that you would help us honestly evaluate where we stand on, this, on the spectrum. Are we just trying to use and control you, even with the best of intentions? Or are we at peace with our relationship with you and as our inspiration to be with you? God, we thank you for your son Jesus who makes this all possible. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who empowers us um, to experience this life this side of heaven. We thank you for your glory and your righteousness and your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.